The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. In the case of Herod the Great, just the fact that he was called king uh, tells you something about the uh, status that Judea would have had uh, for the Romans. Uh, the best that we can tell uh, right now is that Herod was committed to serving the Romans. That meant being a, a genuine friend of the Romans. And uh, the, the practical meaning of that was that in the case of conflict, Herod would always be on the side of the Romans and fight for them and not do anything whatsoever that might undermine the power of the Roman Empire. In addition, Herod would have the uh, responsibility of paying certain kinds of taxes and fees and so on to the Romans. But um, the basic approach to uh, handling these uh, areas in the Roman Empire that were given independ uh, relative independence uh, what it really meant was that the Romans would prefer not to get involved in the actual governing of the country as long as they felt secure that that particular country or state or whatever uh, remained subservient to them. At the, at the slightest sign of disloyalty, then you have a problem. But uh, we get the distinct impression that basically Herod could do just about anything he wanted as long as it did not conflict with uh, uh, strict Roman policies. Yeah? Okay, so, so Rome gets military support and taxes. Yeah. What does Herod get out of it? What does Israel get? <laughs> well, protection actually. Because if uh, at any point there is um, danger from some of the areas that either uh, happen to lie outside of the confines of the empire, or if you happen to have any kind of uh, rebellion within the empire that might threaten the, uh, the stability of, uh, of Judea, then the Romans, of course, would back, uh, back up the Judeans. And I think there's more to it than that. I think um, trade, uh, various kinds of uh, elements of diplomacy that would strengthen the, uh, the standing of Judea. So it, in general, it was not a bad deal, except that the Jews felt we are really slaves, in a sense, because we, would not, we are not able to rule ourselves directly. And they certainly did not view Herod as someone who could represent them uh, faithfully. Starting from the Maccabees and moving to the Hasmonean dependence, it seemed like under 
Among themselves, you mean within the Maccabeans themselves? That was not the case until Salome died. It was not the case. It was only after the death of Salome where you have this conflict with the two brothers that you have this internal uh, vying for power. But in another sense, there certainly was a considerable amount of, of internal tension for a, for a fairly long period, probably even already at the time of Jonathan. You know, if it is true that the Qumran community separated when, when Jonathan um, became the high priest, you may be sure that there was uh, a certain amount of discontent affecting the broader population as well. Mm -hmm. Is there any time that we can point to in this apocalyptic genre? Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll get to apocalyptic uh, stuff uh, maybe tomorrow. Um, yeah, let, let, me, let me hold on on that one. Yes. Uh, Rosa makes a couple of comments about um, what he calls errors in the Bible, like one account in Mark. He uh, said, I think Herodias was uh, Philip's wife, mm -hmm. and not, uh, not the other brother. In another place, he makes a reference to the trial and how um, the, what, what he said was an original account was the uh, Greek, but that was and it's another story. Yeah, somebody brought up that question last time as well. Um, Loza certainly is not an evangelical in in the usual sense in which we I mean he would he comes from Germany and the evangelical church in Germany is the Lutheran church, but but not evangelical in the sense in which that that word is normally taken uh, here. He is a, um, you might call him a mainstream uh, biblical scholar. And um, you know, you'll get plenty of this sort of thing in various uh, courses. But um, for him, and, and I'm not making a judgment here about his, the genuineness of his faith or anything of the sort, but uh, mainstream scholarship looks at the Bible and whatever else they may think about the Bible, they, they view it as, as a purely historical document that needs to be evaluated the way that you might evaluate any historical document. Uh, and therefore, the possibility of errors and, and mistakes and so on is uh, sort of taken for granted. Um, one of the things that you know, we're very concerned here that um, um, 
in the course of your program, you become exposed to the breadth of, of scholarship. And um, the main reason I, I choose this text is that it's, it is so clearly set out in comparison with other books. And uh, apart from two or three little comments like that, there isn't much in the book that is objectionable. You'll read some other stuff at other times that you'll find a little bit more uh, hard to uh, stomach. But um, uh, let me say, with regard to the uh, business about the Herodias and so on, the, the problem there is this, that um, you have, I'm running ahead of my story right now, but um, yeah, we better wait again because we, we haven't really covered the, the sons of Herod. I'll say a little bit more about uh, the sons and, and try to deal with that problem. The other problem, uh, you might as well just wait until the Gospels course because it is a more complicated issue, namely that uh, even evangelical scholars who recognize the authority of the Gospels also realize perfectly well that you do not have um, you know, verbatim quotations and uh, a point-by-point uh, -point biography of Jesus, uh, that there is a certain amount of interpretation, I think divinely inspired interpretation, and that uh, sometimes the gospel writers in, in presenting the story and the, and the teachings of Jesus may quote-unquote expand in the sense of you know, throwing more light on the situation. Uh, it is true, now I don't remember the specific passage that you may have, um, uh, may have in mind here. It is true that when a lot of scholars talk about that sort of thing, the implication is that after the death of Jesus, there was a tendency for, you know, legends or whatever to, to grow up. I don't know that that's exactly what he may have in mind there. But um, it is a little bit more complicated to deal with that issue, and, and uh, you will have plenty of, of uh, opportunity in the, in the Gospels course to deal with that. Okay, let's uh, uh, pick up the story. I had um, already said a few things about uh, Herod's character and uh, the way in which, uh, particularly as his rule uh, progressed, uh, things got worse and worse for him. Uh, and part of what I mean by that is it is very clear that the more Herod tried to hold on to power and to prevent any kind of uh, uh, disloyalty, uh, the more out of touch with reality he seemed to become. The fact that he did have more than one of his uh, children assassinated and uh, lots of other really quite uh, strange types of behavior. Uh, all of that is a clear sign of the um, gradual but uh, you know, inexorable decline in his uh, rule, probably his mental health and, and what have you. And uh, eventually he did die of, of some terrible disease that people are not able to uh, identify precisely, but Josephus gives some graphic descriptions of some of his, um, of his experiences during his last days. Upon his death, uh, there was a little problem. Herod had left a testament 
dividing his kingdom among uh, three of his sons. But because Judea was subject to the Roman Empire, any testament of that sort had to be approved by the Romans. And that there was the opportunity given to people to argue against the testament. And sure enough, the Jews sent a delegation to Rome to present their case against, uh, in particular, giving to Archelaus the province, the, the kingdom of Judea. Now, the Romans decided for a compromise. And uh, they basically did divvy up the kingdom the way that Herod had uh, originally intended. But they were not quite willing to make Archelaus king as Herod the Great had wanted. Instead, they made him an ethnarch, which is a uh, fairly significant uh, position, but not king. And then he was going to have a probation period and uh, see how he was going to uh, manage. Now, let me, um, I don't know, some of you probably are familiar with the map of Palestine. Others of you may not be. Could you flip the light uh, back there, please? The middle light. It's very important for you to have a, a pretty good sense of where things are, at least in, in relation to one another. And um, what you see here are the boundaries resulting after the death of uh, Herod the Great. Judea as you see, goes as far south as the area that had been occupied by the Edomians, and that included also the area of Samaria. Now, you may recall from the Old Testament period that when the Assyrians came and conquered the kingdom of Israel in the north, there was a great deal of, um, of mixed marriage because the Assyrians brought people from other lands and they sent... Uh, Israelites over to other countries and so on. And in the course of time, there developed what came to be known as the Samaritans. And uh, they believed in the Torah, in the five books of Moses, but nothing beyond that uh, in, in the Old Testament, and had uh, their own place of worship in Mount Gerizim and so on. But uh, the area called Judea, sometimes could refer simply to Judea proper. Uh, here is Jerusalem, the capital. And it could also be used to include Samaria later on as all of that area came under a province, as a province under direct uh, uh, rule by the Romans. The whole place could be called Judea. But strictly speaking, Judea would be this part here in the south, and then Samaria uh, in the northern part. Another son of Herod, uh, named Herod also, Herod Antipas, Herod Antipas, was given two areas, Galilee here in the north, 
and then separate from that, the area of Perea on the eastern side of the Jordan. Here's Perea. And finally, Philip was given this area northeast of the Sea of Galilee. Here's the Sea of Galilee. Here's the Dead Sea. And uh, it didn't have one name. It, it includes Batania, Tacronitis, Peneus, and so on. And um, that's where Philip had his uh, rule. Now, the area that I have not mentioned so far on this side, called the Capolis, uh, had its own. It, the reason it's called the Capolis is that um, that's a Greek word means ten cities, and they were ten major cities. They were not Jewish uh, areas, but the Gentile uh, population, and that did not come under the um, uh, rule of any of, of Herod's sons. Now, Archelaus what can we say about him? He um, had probably all of his father's weaknesses and none of his strengths. And you get a real sense for how the Jews would have felt about, Ar about Archelaus when you read the Gospel of Matthew. Remember how Matthew is the one who gives us the incident about uh, the, uh, the wise men from the east and uh, Herod the Great murdering the children in Bethlehem. And uh, prior to that terrible event, uh, jo uh, Joseph um, was given a message to go to Egypt. And uh, when you get to the end of chapter 2, he receives another message through a dream saying that those who were seeking the life of the child have died, so you, you may return. But Matthew then tells us that uh, apparently Joseph was intending to go back to Bethlehem. And uh, we're told that when he heard that Archelaus was ruling in Judea in the place of his father, he put on the brakes, I don't think so, and went back to Nazareth in Galilee. And in that uh, little comment, even though nothing specific is said about Archelaus, you can already sense the um, concerns that the Jews had about, uh, about this man. And sure enough, he uh, just was not able to um, understand what a ruler is supposed to do. Things went from bad to worse. And eventually, in the year 6 AD 6, uh, he was banished by the Romans. And as a result, the area that had been ruled by Archelaus came under direct Roman rule. In other words, now it was no longer a quasi-independent state. The Romans now sent a governor, a Roman governor, who makes Caesarea the seat of his rule. That's where he lives most of the time. But uh, the Romans had a lot of trouble understanding the Jewish mentality and the Jewish population. And as a result, uh, life was not very pleasant for anybody during the period of direct Roman rule. Now, 
If you will turn to the uh, back of your syllabus, I have a uh, chart, and I want to go over this in a little bit of detail because things get very complicated. Not only are you dealing with a number of people who succeed each other chronologically, but at the same time you have to keep in mind that there are several things going on at the same time in different areas of Palestine. Now, on the left-hand column, I have given you the names of the emperors, and it is a good idea for you to know who these guys are. And, um, you know, even if you don't memorize the dates exactly, you should at least have a sense of how their, their rule uh, synchronizes, if you will, with events that were taking place in, in Palestine. The first emperor was Augustus. The same fellow who was named Octavian, uh, Octavian, Mark Anthony, all that stuff. Octavian is the one who wins out, and as an emperor, he becomes Augustus. And as you can see, he ruled from, as an emperor, from 31 BC to AD 14. He died in the year uh, 14. Prior to his death, about three years before his death, there was a certain degree of uh, co-ruling, if you will, joint ruling with his uh, stepson Tiberius. And then when Augustus dies in the year 14, Tiberius becomes the, uh, the sole ruler and emperor. Tiberius is important because he is the emperor in power during the ministry of Jesus. He dies in the year 37. And uh, at that time, Caligula comes to power. Now, Caligula is the fellow who, among other things, made his own horse a consul of the Roman Empire and a few other choice uh, decisions of that sort. The man was a lunatic, and uh, eventually uh, the Praetorian Guard itself uh, had him put away. And in the year 41, uh, Claudius becomes uh, the emperor. I don't know if any of you have seen the uh, you know, public television series, uh, I, Claudius, which is um, uh, you know, somewhat fictional, but based on, on the real lives of the emperors. And uh, supposedly, Claudius was a scholar, and he uh, was very much interested in history, and so the story is told from his perspective. It's very, very enlightened, by the way. It, it sheds light even on, the, um, on what was going on in uh, Palestine, because uh, Agrippa, that we'll talk about uh, in just a minute, happened to be a very close friend I mean, from childhood uh, with uh, Claudius. <coughs> Claudius uh, is the emperor in power during uh, a lot of the period covered in the book of Acts. And then eventually Nero comes to power and uh, under his rule things go from bad to worse as you know until the year 68 when he dies and then you have a short period of civil war leading to these last three uh, individuals uh, at least the last in the period that we're interested in here. So in particular, make sure that from Augustus through Nero, 
you have a fairly good, you know, idea in your mind of, of uh, who these guys were and, and uh, uh, their basic order and how they fit in with the uh, New Testament uh, narrative. Then you have three other columns corresponding to the three geographical areas that I was just uh, pointing to. Judea and Samaria, Galilee with Perea, which even though they're not joined uh, physically, nevertheless, uh, politically, they were uh, treated uh, together. And then finally, that area of Batania, Golanitis, Trachonitis, and all that stuff. As you can see, Herod the Great is there under all three of those geographical areas because he ruled that whole region from the year 37 B.C. to the year 4 B.C. By the way, I guess um, in, in case you haven't read too much about this, you know that Jesus was born before Herod the Great died. And it's a little confusing how, how come Jesus was born before Christ, uh, B.C. Uh, what happened was that in the... I think it was the 6th century, there was a monk who was an astronomer and all that, and he was given the responsibility to come up with a new calendar. Up, up to that point, whenever you want to refer to something, you might say, well, in the 20th year of such and such a reign, and if you want to be a, a little more universal in scope, you might date something uh, as from the year in which the city of Rome was founded. Uh, A-U-C, Ad Urbem Condita, from the foundation of the city, which nobody knew for sure, but, you know, uh, they had a particular date and, and things were dated from that time. So this monk uh, was asked by the Pope to come up with a new calendar, which would not have such a pagan basis, but would have a Christian basis. So, you know, figure out when Jesus was born and make that the beginning of the calendar. Well, he was a very fine man and did his homework and so on. But um, if I remember correctly, I believe that uh, this may not be quite right, so don't take any notes here. Uh, he figured that Jesus was born in the year 743 from the foundation of Rome. And uh, so year one began here. By the way, there's no year zero. You know, you go from 1 BC to 1 AD. And uh, the idea was that Jesus was born December 25th, which nobody really knows, you know. Um, and then the year one begins January the 1st after that December 25th. But um, in, in modern times, as people look more carefully at, you know, solar eclipses and all that stuff, uh, they came to the conclusion that Herod the, uh, Herod the Great died in the year 739. And when they were able to determine that with almost complete certainty, it was obvious that Jesus had to be born no, er, no later than 4 B.C. And possibly 
even earlier, because if Herod uh, gives the order to kill every child two years and under, uh, he was trying to figure out, well, maybe he was born, Jesus was born a year or two before that. So, uh, you know, we don't know for sure. We cannot be exact about that sort of thing. And even this is not absolute certainty. Um, some years back, there was a fellow in Southern California who was simulating with computers, you know, everything, all the movements of the stars and everything else. And he came to the conclusion that uh, Jesus was born, that, that Herod didn't die until the year two or one, I forget, and, and that Jesus was born right about that time. And uh, his, part of his argument was that in the year two, was it, first of all, during the summer, there was this remarkable alignment of the planets in a way that uh, you know, happens very, very rarely. And then, uh, about December, sometime in December, Jupiter, which is the king planet, actually was positioned in the middle of the uh, constellation Virgo, the Virgin. You see, right in the belly. And um, his argument was that these wise men, who would have been astrologers, uh, he figures that, sure enough, you know, in, in the winter of the year one or two, whenever it was, they would get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, look south, and they would see the king planet you know, right there on top of Bethlehem. And so that's what, what led them. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's not exactly what the Bible says, but how can you disprove some of these things? This particular theory that I have just given you has not apparently convinced too many people. I mean, all the astronomical charts and whatever. And so it is still believed that uh, Herod the Great died in 4 BC and therefore that Jesus uh, would have been born uh, no later than this particular date. So that's part of the complication in, um, uh, in coming up with the dates. Then um, if you look down in, in the chart, again you see that uh, Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Philip rule uh, each of those regions. I have already said a little bit about Archelaus from 4 BC to AD 6, and then in the year AD 6, you have Roman governors, uh, so that uh, Judea and Samaria are ruled directly by Rome through uh, a, uh, an individual under their direct um, supervision. Among these governors, the one that you know, of course, is Pilate, who was in charge from the year 26 to the year 36. Now, um, let's stop the story here in Judea and Samaria and move over to the, uh, the fourth column where you have this fellow Philip. By the way, uh, here's where the question comes about Herodias and so on. The, the difficulty is that um, Mark uses the term Herod Philip. And... Um, the uh, information that we get outside of the Bible, for example, from Josephus, it's, it's difficult to, um, to verify whether this is a uh, different individual or not. 
and, and that's part of the problem. There, there isn't a, a um, totally convincing solution to the problem. But uh, a possible solution is that you have a second, uh, an additional son of Herod, uh, who also had the name Philip, and on top of him, Philip, the name Herod. If you're really interested in this topic, by the way, there's a book by uh, Harold Holner, who is professor of New Testament at Dallas Seminary. And his, um, his doctoral dissertation was on Herod Antipas, and, and he later published it as a book with that title, Herod Antipas. By Harold Honer. So, um, you know, he, uh, he spends a bit of time on that particular problem, but he also spends a lot of time on social, economic kinds of issues going on at the time. And, and trying to provide as much background information as possible on uh, what was going on in Galilee by the time of Jesus' uh, ministry. In any case, Philip rules from 4 BC to AD 34, and apparently his rule in that region is, uh, you know, with, without a lot of uh, major commotion, as far as we can tell, although. Uh, even if it did, it would not affect our concerns directly because uh, that area was populated primarily by Gentiles. When he dies in the year 34, um, and I did not uh, mention this in the chart, but the, the area that had been ruled by him came under the rule of a Syrian legate who was in charge of the area north of uh, in other words, what, it, what was called Syria. So when, when Philip dies here, more or less by default, this area comes under the rule of the Syrian legate for about three years. But now something very interesting happens in the um, history of the Roman uh, emperors and so on. This fellow I mentioned earlier, Herod Agrippa, he was the grandson of Herod the Great. You've got to be very careful about this. There are now three people named Herod. And the New Testament refers to them as Herod. And almost every preacher that I've ever heard preach on, on the various Herods gets confused about these. There's Herod the Great. He only shows up at the beginning of the gospel story because... Obviously, he dies uh, <laughs> right after that, at, right after Jesus' birth. So, you, so if you see a reference to Herod in the first couple of chapters in Matthew, first two chapters in Matthew, or the, or the first, chapters in, uh, first couple of chapters in Luke, that's Herod the Great. Anywhere else in the Gospels, if you have a reference to Herod, that is Herod Antipas in Galilee. In the book of Acts, the references to Herod are to Herod Agrippa. All right? Now, here's the story. Agrippa, as I mentioned earlier, as a child, was a good friend of the, of the uh, emperor's family. He actually lived in Rome for a period. And uh, he, Herod Agrippa, knew Caligula as a child, played with Claudius as a, as a child. 
And uh, again, he is the grandson of Herod the Great, but not the son of any of these three guys. Herod's family is very complicated. Uh, check out the chart in, in Lowe's uh, book um, if you want to. But um, when Agrippa grows older, during the, the rule of Herod, of not Herod, sorry, of Tiberius, of the Emperor Tiberius, he got into trouble with the Emperor. Uh, apparently, in some banquet, he had drunk a little bit too much and made some remark that was offensive to the Emperor. And uh, Agrippa ended up in jail. When Tiberius dies and Caligula becomes the Emperor, Right. The first thing, one of the first things that Caligula does is to release Agrippa from prison, who's his buddy, and he makes him ruler over this area that Philip had ruled. So that's why in that column you see Herod Agrippa I begins to rule there 37 to 44. Okay. Thoroughly confused so far? Gets worse. Now, Herod Agrippa didn't get along real well with his uncle, Herod Antipas, who ruled Galilee and Perea. Agrippa was a fairly ambitious fellow, and uh, he had his eye on this area as well. Now, Agrippa found out that Antipas, who had been in a little bit of trouble with some Nabataean kings out here, you see how Nabatea is next to Perea, which was also ruled by Antipas, and um, actually had to do with this marriage and so on. Let's not get involved in that right now. But as a result of some of the conflicts, Antipas was afraid of, of uh, having to wage uh, battle against the Nabataeans. And so he had begun to build his, um, uh, you know, uh, it was like a, um, you know, weapons, ammunitions, and so on that he kept secret from everybody. Uh, including the Romans, just in case something were to happen, somehow or other, Agrippa got wind of this. Okay. Now, as the story goes, Herod Antipas um, was being nagged by his wife, Herodias, about the fact that he hadn't gotten a promotion in all these years. And uh, he said, look, you've been a good uh, ruler and so on, and, and you, you're still a, you know, mis a miserable tetrarch. Uh, I think you ought to, you know, present your case before the emperor and so on. Antipas just wanted to leave well enough alone, but she kept after him and kept after him. And Antipas finally said, you know, I guess she's right. I, I deserve a little bit of appreciation here. So they decided to take a trip to Rome. 
and to present uh, his case directly before the emperor Caligula. What did I say? Antipas. Antipas. Antipas uh, takes his wife Herodias and goes to Rome to present his case. That was right about the time when Agrippa found out about the ammunition and everything else that uh, Antipas is building up. He, that is Agrippa, sends a letter to the emperor. And as luck would have it, the letter arrives in Rome the selfsame day that Antipas has his uh, interview with the emperor. So uh, Herod Antipas comes in with his wife, sits down, and here is Caligula reading this letter. <laughs> says, um, I understand that you have, uh, that you're building up your um, uh, military, um, you know, forces and so on in, in Perea. Is this true? Antipas couldn't deny it. And that was interpreted as immediate, immediately as treason against Rome. Without much consideration, Herod Antipas was banished. And Herodias went with him. And of course, Agrippa is given the area, the areas that have been ruled by Antipas. So now, as you can see from your middle column there, Herod Agrippa takes over that area in the year 39. Okay? Two years later, Caligula is assassinated and the uh, limping and lisping Claudius is made the emperor. But Claudius and Agrippa were the best of buddies. So one of the first things that Claudius does is to give to Agrippa Judea and Samaria on top of everything. So you see what's been happening in Judea and Samaria. You had had direct rule from the year 6 all the way until now the year 41. The year 41, Antipas, sorry, Agrippa, is made king over virtually the whole area that had been ruled by his grandfather, Herod Agrippa, Herod the Great. <clears throat> so that is why when you get to this level in the chart, uh, the name of Agrippa is um, in all three columns. Now Agrippa didn't last very long in the year 44, and uh, you're given some information about this in the book of Acts. Um, chapter 12 of the book of Acts, you remember how we're told that Agrippa puts James, the apostle James in prison, has him executed uh, the Pharisees love it, and Agrippa says, oh, you like that? Okay, I'll do some, something else for you. So he puts Peter in prison, and he's ready to execute him, and then the angel comes, you will recall, and um, Peter is let out of prison, 
uh, Agrippa is not pleased and he has the guards executed. And later in the same chapter, we have that story about Agrippa, Herod, he's just called Herod there, giving a discourse in Caesarea, uh, all of these, you know, these delegations from Tyre and Sidon had come and he was in his resplendent uh, clothing, probably in the amphitheater there in Caesarea, facing the ocean and the, uh, probably the sea, the, uh, the sun setting or whatever. And uh, it must have been quite a sight. And uh, the people from Tyre and Sidon begin to address him as though he were a god. And we were told that uh, an angel struck him and he died. And interestingly, if you read Josephus, uh, his story is very, very similar, not exact in every detail, but very, very similar to what you read in the book of Acts in chapter 12. Now, there is a little problem here. When you read, uh, if all you know about Herod Agrippa is what you read in the Bible, that means only chapter 12 of Acts, and you would get the impression this man was just a monster. Keep in mind that when Luke writes this, He's not thinking about, you know, there are these students in the 20th century that are going to want to know about uh, Herod Agrippa, so I'd better write a very well-balanced uh, encyclopedia article that gives all the information. Uh, all that he's interested in is in presenting the role that Agrippa plays as, as the church is developing. And so he looks very bad in that context. As a ruler, however, he was very well liked by the Jews. Uh, the Jews were just enchanted with him after, you know, several decades of direct Roman rule. He was always very concerned not to uh, offend uh, the Pharisees and what have you unnecessarily. And so uh, uh, people looked at that period as a, as a very, very uh, positive period in terms of just politically speaking. When uh, Agrippa dies in the year 44, once again, uh, not only Judea and Samaria now, but the whole area comes under the direct rule of Roman governors. And uh, that spelled trouble. Because now what you have is a population that is becoming uh, less and less patient, really, with uh, Roman rule and with Roman governors who seem less and less qualified to deal with the distinctive character of Judaism. Now there were a number of these governors. I have listed four of them for you. Felix and Festus I have listed because they show up in the book of Acts. Not very much is said about them. Uh, this is in connection with uh, Paul being in prison in Caesarea. The last two albinos and floors I have listed because they are, in fact, the last two before the uh, war of AD 66. And uh, they are governors who are criticized severely by Josephus, who views these men as largely responsible for the debacle that took place uh, at the end of the 60s in the first century, yeah. Um, you have, you have the, now, with regard to these three columns, uh, Felix, for example, is he, is he not the governor of Galilee? 
Just uh, Judea and Samaria, yeah. And Rome kept the three provinces separate. I believe so, yeah. And that is why later on you have the, the son of, of Agrippa, Agrippa II, is given uh, Galilee, Perea, and the other areas as well, but not Judea and Samaria because that was just too uh, hot. And of course, Agrippa II shows up in the, the book of Acts as well. Uh, you know, he's the one who says to Paul, you almost persuade me to be a Christian uh, kind of thing. And, um, but anyway, what happens in the year 66 is that uh, you have this final rebellion, uh, the zealots so-called, uh, people who were particularly uh, upset by the lack of political freedom, rebel against the Romans, uh, they take over the temple, the sacrifices stop. Some of them take over the, the great fortress of Masada, and the great the Jewish war of the year 66 begins. Yeah. Actually, um, I don't know that you can blame Nero specifically, uh, Caligula was, in a sense, the, the worst of them. In fact, uh, Caligula went so far as to place an order that a statue of, of himself be placed in, in, in Jerusalem and so on. And fortunately, that never did happen because he got killed and what have you. But um, I don't know that it was so much the, the policy of Nero or of the Roman Empire as a whole as much as the... Uh, the inadequacy of these governors to uh, understand what was going on, and um, instead of making things easier, they just made them worse. But neither do I suspect that that Nero helped particularly. I mean, uh, you know, this uh, great uh, Jewish war, the so-called First Jewish War, um, is detailed by Josephus, both in his book on the Antiquities of the Jews and in a book devoted exclusively, not exclusively, but it's actually called the Jewish War. And he actually spends quite a bit of time giving the background to it, but a lot of detail about this period. Now, that part of the difficulty we have here is that the book of Acts, the narrative of the book of Acts, ends about the year 61, perhaps somewhere around there. And so the Jewish revolt which led to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, um, really seems to fall beyond that period. And similarly, all of the epistles of Paul and most of the other books of the New Testament, at least we believe around here, were completed before AD 70. Now there's some debate about the date of some of the books of the New Testament and so on. Uh, all I'm saying is that when you look at the New Testament, you do not see much, uh, there isn't anything that is really obvious in the New Testament that is uh, related, related directly with the events of uh, the late 60s, then the year 70, and the, eventually the, um, uh, the capture of Masada. Masada was the last fortress, you know, that huge rock in... Um, right here. Uh, magnificent place that, that Herod builds this 
virtual city on top of that rock. This had been taken over by the zealots at the beginning of the war, and uh, they, they, they took over it because the uh, few Romans who were in charge of that fortress were completely, I mean, they were just taken by surprise. But uh, if you uh, are prepared, it is virtually impregnable. And if there's another PBS program or movie, or whatever, Masada, where you have this um, Roman general Flavius Silva, no relation. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, for a, for a very, very long period, uh, they tried to, uh, to conquer this, but they just couldn't. I mean, how could you? They had these enormous cisterns uh, that would uh, collect all the water they needed during the rainy season, uh, and they would have all the water for the dry season, which was most of the year. The poor uh, Roman uh, soldiers were out there in the desert, no water. Uh, it, it's quite a story. And in, in the history of, of Judaism generally, uh, that event, particularly when the Romans finally build this incredible ramp and they take the, uh, the machinery and uh, they commit mass suicide, except for two women. And uh, even today, you go to Israel, you're going to find lots of, uh, you know, evidence of, of this, uh, just full of patriotism as, as they think of, um, of these uh, Jews uh, fighting to the bitter end. Hmm? So, so the Israeli army still is part of their training boot camp. Takes oh, sure. The oh, yeah. The oh, yeah. It's, it's a very, very powerful symbol. All right, let's take a little break, and uh, we'll finish that particular story.